You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 199, Little Egg Harbor and Pulaski's Legion. Last week, I talked about the fighting around New York City as the British, under the command of General Sir Henry Clinton, consolidated their position and shipped off soldiers to other parts of the empire. The ministry in London had ordered an end to major combat operations in the region, but expected the army and navy to continue its coastal raids. The British navy would take a primary role in the strategy of coastal raids. The naval commander in North America, Admiral Richard Howe, was not really interested in doing this. Lord Howe had been reluctant to take command in North America back in early 1776. In Parliament, he had opposed British policies toward the colonies. The only reason he did take command there was that his brother, General William Howe, was in command of the army in North America, and also because the ministry agreed to allow both of the Howe brothers to act as peace commissioners and try to negotiate a diplomatic end to the hostilities. The peace negotiations, of course, had been a complete failure, even after the ministry sent the Carlisle Commission with far broader authority to concede some political power to the Americans. By the fall of 1778, Admiral Howe's brother had been recalled to London and replaced by General Clinton. Like his brother, Admiral Howe saw the mission as a failure, and that it would never succeed because the ministry would not commit enough resources. Admiral Howe had submitted a request to resign back in November 1777, shortly after his brother General Howe had submitted his own resignation. After his brother went home in June of 1778, Admiral Howe was looking for an opportunity to follow. Until he could leave, though, Howe remained active keeping the French fleet under d'Estaing from attacking New York Harbor in July 1778, then following the French to Newport in August, where the two fleets were damaged by a storm while jockeying for a position to fight one another. The French then sailed to Boston for repairs. Howe's fleet followed them, but found the defenses around Boston too extensive to justify the risk of a direct assault. With the French fleet not going anywhere for some time, Howe sailed south, where he encountered the fleet carrying General Gray for the attacks at Bothard's Bay and Martha's Vineyard that I discussed last week. Howe had been trying to find his second-in-command, Vice Admiral John Byron, who had gone missing after the storms around Newport. In early September, while Howe was providing backup for General Gray's coastal raids in Buzzards Bay, he received a letter from Byron that he was in Halifax but that he would be headed for New York. Howe immediately left, taking his fleet to New York even before Gray completed his raid on Martha's Vineyard. Knowing that the French fleet would be under repair for quite some time, 
Howe saw this as a chance to turn over his command and return to London. He had hoped that Byron would be in New York by the time he arrived, but Byron was nowhere to be found. Admiral Byron was living up to his nickname of Foul Weather Jack. He had only left England in June, dispatched to contend with the French fleet under D'Estaing. When he left, Britain was scraping the bottom of the barrel for sailors. A large number of his crew had been pulled out of jail for naval service. Because food for prisoners was so bad, many of them were sick at the time they boarded ship. Sickness and scurvy quickly spread among the crew as it crossed the Atlantic. To add to his problems, on July 3rd, while in the middle of the ocean, a brutal storm hit the fleet, the ships were scattered, it wasn't until August 18th that Byron finally arrived off of Sandy Hook in New York Harbor aboard his flagship, the Princess Royal. There, he encountered several French ships from Destang's fleet. Because he had been separated from his own fleet and was on his own, Admiral Byron sailed away headed for Halifax. Most of Byron's fleet eventually made it to Sandy Hook, the other ships stayed there as the French fleet had moved on to Newport by that time. For the crews who arrived, many of them were sick and many of the ships were damaged by the Atlantic storm that they had encountered. Meanwhile, Admiral Howe was in New York Harbor and was in no mood to wait around for Byron to show up. Instead, he turned over his command to Admiral James Gambier and prepared to set sail for London. Admiral Howe's rather sudden and impatient decision to turn over command to Gambier is a perplexing one. Immediately after turning over his command, Howe remained in New York for several days, but refused to consider any further operations and forwarded to Gambier any dispatches that were sent to him. Even after Byron's finally showed up just off Sandy Hook on September 15th, Howe made no effort to delay his departure. Instead, he simply sent a note that he had left the more junior Admiral Gambier in command. Byron's ship got blown out to sea the following day and ended up sailing to Newport rather than into New York Harbor. A week later, Admiral Hale sailed out of New York and reached Newport the following day. There, he met with Byron, where he supposedly told him that Byron needed to get to New York right away and relieve Gambier. The next day, Howe weighed anchor and left for London. As far as I can tell, Admiral Byron never did relieve Gambier of command. This is all the more perplexing because Gambier was not a leader who inspired much confidence. Gambier's father had grown wealthy by fleecing prisoners as warden of the notorious fleet prison. James Gambier joined the Navy in 1741 at age 18 he managed to get command of a small sloop about five years later. About this time, Gambier, stationed in Jamaica, started an affair with a woman about his age who was married to a 52-year-old admiral who also happened to be governor of Jamaica at the time, Sir Charles Knowles. A year later, Gambier brought his lover and her children back to Plymouth in England with him the governor of Jamaica apparently still unaware of the love affair that the two were having. During the Seven Years' War, Gambier took command of two different ships and was wounded. He was not wounded in battle, though. In fact, it does not appear that he ever even took either of his ships out to sea. 
One night, while drinking in a Plymouth tavern, a riot broke out and he sustained an injury there. Later that year, his ten-year-long affair with Lady Knowles became public. Gambier was tried and fined 1,000 guineas for the crime of adultery. The conviction, however, did not seem to slow up his career. Gambier received another command and went to North America in time for the siege of Louisburg during the Seven Years' War. Later, he served as commodore of a small fleet that was part of the Battle of Kiberon Bay. Despite his combat achievements, Gambier did not have a particularly good reputation. He was, with good reason, known as a bit of a ladies' man, and also someone always looking to make a profit from his position. He was, however, good friends with the Earl of Sandwich, who became First Lord of the Admiralty. Lord Sandwich appointed Gambier to be commander of North America back in 1770. In three relatively uneventful years, in Boston, Gambier pulled in a fair amount of money by fleecing the locals. When it became clear that the colonies were headed for real problems in 1773, London recalled Gambier. Rather than go after him for his corruption and incompetence, the Admiralty gave him new positions as Commissioner of the Navy at Portsmouth and Governor of the Royal Naval Academy. In 1778, when it became clear that war with France was imminent, the Admiralty wanted someone more competent in charge at Portsmouth. So, once again, they promoted Gambier to Rear Admiral and sent him back to North America. Admiral Howe told Gambier not to go to sea and to stay in New York City, where he did almost nothing. Byron should have taken command within days of Howe leaving, but for some reason he did not. Byron remained at sea and in October just headed for the West Indies. To everyone's horror, Gambier remained in command of the Navy in North America for several months before finally returning home in April of 1779. Shortly after Admiral Howe left for London, the British did conduct one other raid. However, the raid was not done at the behest of Admiral Howe, Admiral Gambier, or Admiral Byron. Rather, it was done at the behest of General Clinton. Little Egg Harbor was a small inlet in southern New Jersey, about 80 miles south of New York City, just north of where modern-day Atlantic City is today. American privateers were using the harbor as a base of operations. They would capture British prizes, move them up the Mullica River, then unload the goods and cart them overland to Philadelphia for sale. This method avoided British patrols near the Delaware Bay, which would have been the more direct way to get goods to Philadelphia. The small port took on an increased importance when the British occupied Philadelphia and the Continentals needed to get supplies from Europe. Even after the British left Philadelphia, the port remained an active base for privateers. The British considered the American privateers to be pirates. The group was, in fact, a pretty rough bunch of cutthroats. Even Continental leaders had to watch themselves when traveling through that area. At the request of General Clinton, Admiral Howe deployed a force of about 200 men to take out this group and put an end to their attacks on shipping. In command of the British attack force was Captain Patrick Ferguson. I've mentioned Captain Ferguson before. He was the same officer who fought under General John Vaughan against Lord Stirling at the Battle of Short Hills. Later, he led a Hessian column at Brandywine, 
where he allegedly declined an opportunity to kill General Washington. Ferguson was the second son of a Scottish laird. He had joined the army at age 15, and he had seen active service in the Seven Years' War, where a leg wound ended his service early and got him sent home. According to some stories, his leg was the result of an illness, not enemy fire. Whatever the case, it left him disabled. In 1768, though, he purchased a captaincy and was deployed to the West Indies. By 1772, he was back living in Britain, where General Howe was training units in light infantry training. This was a new style of warfare that made much more active use of soldiers and did not require them to stand shoulder to shoulder in lines of battle. General Howe and other officers with experience in North America were encouraging this new training. As part of this effort, Ferguson developed what became known as the Ferguson Rifle. This was a breech-loading weapon that had an accuracy of a rifle, but could be reloaded faster than a musket. It was also very easy to load while lying on the ground. Ferguson had proven his rifle to be effective at the Battle of Short Hills and at Brandywine in 1777. However, he suffered a shot in the elbow during the Battle of Brandywine and spent eight months in Philadelphia struggling to heal. He never did fully recover the use of his arm, but he did avoid having it amputated. He trained himself to shoot left-handed and resumed active duty in the summer of 1778. It was then that he took command of this small regiment of New Jersey Loyalists. Eager to prove himself to General Clinton, Ferguson volunteered to clear out the American privateer base at Little Egg Harbor. As I said, the harbor had been a privateer base of operations for quite some time. After the British seized several ships there in 1777, the Americans built a small fort to protect the harbor. The small town around the fort, named Chestnut Neck, grew to accommodate the privateers. Two taverns hosted prize courts, where captured ships and cargoes were auctioned off to the highest bidder. In August of 1778, the harbor was particularly busy, capturing at least 30 ships, including one rather large prize that sold for 16,000 pounds sterling. In response to this activity, General Clinton wanted this nest of pirates wiped out. He deployed a force of 400 soldiers, a mix of regulars and loyalists under the command of Captain Ferguson. The force traveled down the coast in nine small ships. Their mission was to disrupt the privateering operations, capture or destroy anything they found, and also to destroy a small ironworks just upriver from the village. A word of this raid got out even before Ferguson left New York. New Jersey Governor William Livingston sent a courier to the area to warn the locals of the impending attack. He also called on the Continental Army to defend against the raid. Due to poor weather, it took the British nearly five days to reach the harbor. They arrived on October 4th to find the place nearly abandoned. Privateers had taken their ships out to sea to avoid capture. The locals hid in the surrounding pine barrens, taking their personal valuables with them. There was still a small garrison at the fort, but they had removed any cannons to prevent their destruction or capture. When the British fleet arrived, the garrison simply fled into the woods. The Americans had chosen Little Egg Harbor in part because it had many sandbars and shallow areas, making it difficult for attacking ships to navigate. 
Ferguson had to crowd his men onto some of the smaller ships in the fleet to sail into the harbor. Not facing any resistance, the men spent a day burning all the buildings and a few prize ships that were still in the harbor. Because they could not navigate the harbor well, they had to burn the ships rather than sail them back to New York. They also destroyed a small salt works nearby. After receiving word that a larger continental force was on its way to confront them, Ferguson simply gathered his men back onto the ships and put out to sea again. The continental response to this attack was led by General Casimir Pulaski. I gave more of an introduction to this Polish-born officer back in episode 159. He was one of many European officers who came to America to offer their experience and leadership to the new army. Pulaski had served with Washington at the Battle of Brandywine, despite not having a commission at the time. In fact, the story I alluded to earlier, where Captain Ferguson had an opportunity to kill General Washington at Brandywine, involves a story that Captain Ferguson saw two officers on horseback on Brandywine Battlefield and had both of them within his rifle sights. He declined to fire on them because their backs were turned to him. According to some accounts, those officers were in fact George Washington and Casimir Pulaski. Late in that battle, Pulaski cabled together a group of soldiers on horseback and led a charge that helped the Continentals to escape. Anyway, in the days after Brandywine, Congress granted a general's commission to Pulaski and made him commander of cavalry. Now, this may sound like an impressive title, but the Continentals did not have a cavalry to command. Although some soldiers had brought their horses with them when they joined the army, the army often ordered them to send the horses home because they could not afford to feed them. During the winter at Valley Forge, Pulaski lobbied to put together an independent command of cavalry. In March 1778, Congress finally authorized a legion of 68 cavalry and 200 light infantry to form Pulaski's legion. Pulaski would then have to recruit said soldiers and then train and equip them. Pulaski set about selecting officers for his new legion, which he pulled mostly from other European officers who were already serving in the Continental Army. His real difficulty was enlisting soldiers. Pulaski set up recruiting offices from Baltimore to Boston, offering signing bounties. The problem was, though, that most of the men who were willing to join the army had already joined. Those who remained might be tempted by local leaders, but very few were inclined to join some European officer who was promising to form some strange legion they'd never heard of. Pulaski's recruiters got into some disputes over allegations that they had recruited men that had already signed up for other units. Pulaski also received permission to recruit one-third of his legion from Hessian deserters or prisoners of war. In the end, the portions of Hessians serving in the legion was actually much more than that. As a result, many were concerned about the loyalty of the legion. Congress had given Pulaski $60,000 to recruit and outfit his new legion, but the inflation of paper money required him to spend more than that, which also led to criticism in Congress. Pulaski finally assembled his legion and trained them in Wilmington, Delaware, by the end of August of 1778. However, Congress would not activate the new corps. In response, Pulaski marched his legion to Philadelphia for a grand review. 
he would march his legion through the streets of Philadelphia and get Congress to put the new unit into service. Instead, Congress responded by calling on Pulaski to appear before the Board of War to explain financial irregularities that took place during his creation of the legion. On September 19th, General Washington ordered Pulaski's legion to join him in Fredericksburg, New York, as long as he got Congress's permission to depart the city. That was apparently slow in coming, because ten days later Pulaski was still in Philadelphia when he received orders to join Lord Sterling, who was, at the time, trying to counter the British move into Bergen County, New Jersey, that I discussed last week. Again, though, before he could get permission to leave, Congress once again summoned him to appear before the Board of War on October 3rd. It seems that the sheriff had tried to serve Pulaski with a lawsuit while he was marching at the head of his column. Pulaski chased off the sheriff with his sword and continued his march down the thoroughfare. This led to a whole kerfuffle and accusations that the general was refusing to submit to civilian authority. Pulaski had a second hearing before the Board of War to explain himself again. He essentially had to apologize and plead ignorance of American customs. The lawsuit related to an unpaid debt incurred while setting up the Legion, and the Board of War eventually settled with the creditor. With that all finally settled, Congress ordered Pulaski to take his legion to Little Egg Harbor in order to defend against the expected British raid there. Pulaski marched his legion across New Jersey, but did not reach the harbor until after the British had burned everything and returned to their ships. Captain Ferguson's raiders were aboard the ship just off the coast, but were awaiting favorable winds before sailing back to New York. Pulaski billeted his men around the area just in case the British decided to land again. It's not clear if Pulaski had his entire complement of about 330 men or whether only some of them had arrived. It is known that Pulaski scattered his units across several homes and barns in this very rural area. Captain Ferguson received word of Pulaski's arrival and got detailed intelligence on the location of the enemy. On the night of October 14th, Ferguson took 250 men in longboats and rowed to shore. Guided by a local Tory, the soldiers found a group of perhaps at least 50 soldiers under the command of Lieutenant Colonel DeBosen. The British and Loyalist force captured an enemy picket by surprise and killed him before he could fire a warning shot. The attackers fell on the sleeping Americans and bayoneted them without quarter. Ferguson had ordered no prisoners. Reports indicate that between 30 and 50 Americans were killed and only five captured. Following the massacre, the British withdrew. General Pulaski was sleeping a few miles away when he received word of the attack. The general mounted his horse and galloped off toward the sound of gunfire. His cavalry and some of the light infantry with him followed. The British had withdrawn across a creek and pulled up the planks of the bridge so the cavalry could not cross. A few riflemen and light infantry managed to cross and fire on the retreating British. Ferguson would later report three killed and three wounded on the raid. It's not clear if those casualties happened in the initial assault or during the withdrawal. In any event, without the cavalry to support them, the American infantry pulled back to the creek and allowed the British to withdraw. Ferguson's men once again boarded their ships and began to sail back to New York. 
They arrived a week later on October 22nd. Several locals were taken into custody as accused collaborators. Pulaski's men nearly beat one of the men to death before officers intervened. Several of the accused admitted to guiding the British, but said they were forced to do so under threat of death. A court believed them and eventually released them to go home. Pulaski's actions were largely seen as a failure. His remaining legion got deployed up in northwestern New Jersey, near the Delaware River, far from any possible enemy. Pulaski seriously considered resigning his commission and returning to Europe, but in the end opted to remain. Next week, Washington really decides he needs better intelligence about New York and forms the famous Culper Spy Ring. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now They even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks to Train Ants, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Also, thanks to Lee Seam for support at the Robert Morris Circle on Patreon. I also want to welcome new Patreon subscribers Knox Press, Brian Locke, Reese Thomas, Nicholas Lloyd Huss, and Jeff Vandermullen. I also appreciate the one-time gift from Scott Greenberg via PayPal. Some of you who follow podcasting may have heard last week that Apple is launching a new platform that will allow podcasters to charge a fee to their listeners. Please rest assured that I have no plans to put the American Revolution podcast behind a paywall. As I've said many times, I want to make this story available to anyone who wishes to listen. I really do appreciate everyone who has voluntarily contributed, either through ongoing support on Patreon or one-time gifts via PayPal, Venmo, or other ways that help me cover the cost of this podcast. The Apple announcement, I fear, is another step toward consolidating podcasts. I'm not surprised that big tech is looking for ways to make money from podcasting, Unfortunately, it may mean that independent niche podcasts, like the American Revolution podcast, will tend to get pushed aside in favor of celebrity podcasts or other shows that may have a broader appeal. 
Sadly, this is the way of every new form of media that has ever come along. I really hope, though, that indie podcasts can still attract an audience and get the support they need to remain viable. Uh, I also have one quick correction. A couple of weeks ago, I started talking about the Iroquois tribes and referred to the Oneida tribe. Listeners informed me that, once again, I botched the correct pronunciation of a word. It is, in fact, Oneida. I've been trying to be more careful about looking up pronunciations, but this is one of those words that I've read in books for so many years that I just kind of assumed I got it right without looking it up. Again, this is the price of learning from books and not getting out and talking to people more. So this week we saw the departure of Admiral Richard Howe. His brother, General William Howe, had returned to Britain months earlier. I'm still a bit perplexed about the circumstances surrounding Admiral Howe's departure. The Admiral faced parliamentary hearings when he returned home and did not get another military post until after the North Ministry fell several years later. Howe, however, was a peer and a member of the House of Lords, so he spent the rest of the war in opposition to the government's policies. In later ministries, Howe would serve as First Lord of the Admiralty. He also fought against the French fleets in the 1790s, eventually serving as Admiral of the Fleet and also receiving an earldom. I also mentioned Admiral Byron this week, who was supposed to be Howe's successor. He would go on to several more battles in the Revolution, and those, of course, will be topics of future episodes. Admiral Byron's son and namesake also served as a captain in the Royal Navy. Captain Jack Byron's son, the Admiral's grandson, opted to drop out of the family business and instead of a naval career, became a poet. If any of you are familiar with the poetry of Lord Byron, that's the Admiral's grandson. The other poetry connection to this week's episode involves Casimir Pulaski. When Pulaski was assembling his cavalry legion, one of the places he recruited was around Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. In that area, there was a religious group known as the Moravians. The Moravians maintained a group home in Bethlehem for what was sometimes referred to as a group of nuns. These weren't really nuns in the term that most of us think. Rather, it was a group home for women in the Moravian community who had reached the age of 19 and had not yet gotten married. The Moravians kept them in a group home in order to avoid out-of-wedlock births. Many of these young women eventually did get married and left the home. Now, a home for young single women was a natural target for young single male soldiers. The Moravians were concerned about men entering the home, and General Pulaski posted a guard at the home to protect the women. In thanks, the women sewed a regimental flag for Pulaski's new legion. The poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, later wrote a poem about the women making Pulaski's flag. I've added a link to the poem in my further reading section for the blog episode if you want to read it. And I'm going to try to get a copy of the flag to produce as a flag magnet for my Patreon listeners who subscribe at the $10 per month or higher level. They get a free magnet each month, a different flag from the American Revolution. Speaking of Kazimir Pulaski, my book recommendation this week is a biography of that very general. He's an interesting character one of many European officers who came to America in support of the cause of liberty, 
I was a bit reluctant to recommend this book because it is out of print and difficult to find. But I think it's the best Pulaski biography out there. So if you can get a hold of it, look for Casimir Pulaski, Cavalry Commander of the American Revolution by Francis Casimir Kajenki. The book itself is about 300 pages. It focuses on Pulaski's time in America with little attention given to his life in Poland. The author, Francis Kajenki, is a retired U.S. Army officer who published the book in 2001. He passed away in 2008. This appears to be his only full-length book, although his daughter did release a children's book about Pulaski as well. My online recommendation this week involves one of the other characters from this week's episode, Patrick Ferguson. It's called Biographical Sketch or Memoir of Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Ferguson by Adam Ferguson. The author, who may have been a distant relative, is also a famous Scottish philosopher in his own right. The sketch was originally written for the Encyclopedia Britannica, but the editors rejected it because it was too long, and the author refused to cut it down. The main article is 35 pages, and he had it published as a pamphlet, or somebody did, the year after his death in 1817. It's relatively short for a biography, but it is a good look at an interesting British officer and an all-round interesting character. As always, you can search for it yourself on archive.org, or use the direct links that can be found on my website or blog. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for more details. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.